I found this crazy but true story. It was an article written in the Denver Rocky Mountain News described that various websites which people can submit prayers. One site says, simply click on the prayer button and transmit your prayer to the only known location of God. The site claims that they can send prayers via a radio transmitter to God's last known location, a star cluster called M13, believed to be one of the oldest in the universe. Crandall Stone, a Cambridge, Massachusetts engineer and freelance consultant, set up the site after a night of philosophizing with friends in Vermont. Conversation turned into theories of creation, and someone suggested that if everything was in one place at one time, then God must have been there too. It's the one place where we can be sure he was, Stone said. Then we thought that if we could find the location, if we had a radio transmitter, we could send a message to God. So after consulting NASA scientists, the friends settled on M13 as a likely location. They chipped in about $20,000, built a radio wave transmitting website. Stone reports that they transmit about 50,000 prayers a week from seekers around the globe. Now, I have some bits of really good news for you about this. First, that's not how prayer works. Not at all. Second, God's last known location is everywhere. Everywhere. And third, the website no longer exists. See, what foolishness will people think of when it comes to prayer? What foolishness do we think when it comes to prayer? Today we're going to see that Jesus deals with two foolish ideas about prayer. One from the Pharisees and one from the Gentiles. We're in that portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's contrasting true God-centered spiritual life actions with false and shallow and self-centered spiritual life actions. Last week we contrasted true giving with hypocritical giving. This week and next week we're going to look at true praying contrasted with hypocritical foolish praying. The last of these three contrasts in the section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 is Jesus' teaching about true fasting, about denying yourself. So please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6 and follow along as I read verses 5 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, we pray now to you in sincerity and honesty of heart that you would take these words of Jesus spoken all those years ago, bring them alive into our thoughts, into our hearts, into the, our intents and our, and our attitudes, and challenge us and teach us, and convict us, conform us to the example of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we must notice, as we did last week, is that Jesus expects his followers to pray. Jesus says, when you give two times. Jesus says, when you pray three times. And when you fast two times. It doesn't say if. It doesn't say if you have any extra funds or, or if you have any extra time. Jesus' expectation is clear. He says it three times in verses 5, 6, and 7. When you pray. Now, many true followers of Christ struggle with having a regular disciplined prayer time. But all true followers of Christ pray. It's a mark, a distinction, a characteristic of true Christians. Why? Because Jesus said so. But even more than that, Jesus was an amazing man of prayer. He, our Savior, is our example. Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples to pray. He doesn't just teach his disciples how to pray. He showed them by his very life, a life of prayer. For example, Jesus prayed for others. Matthew nineteen thirteen. we read, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. John 17, 9 says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me, for they are yours. Jesus prayed with others. In Luke 9, 28, Jesus took Peter and John and James with him up onto a mountain to pray. Jesus knew the value of praying with others. The early church followed Jesus' example in Acts 1.14 where it says, All these, all the people in the upper room with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Jesus prayed alone. Luke 5.16 reads, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus understood the need of private, personal prayer. Luke 6.12 says of Jesus, He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He prayed for others. He prayed with others. He prayed alone. Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus prayed at his baptism in the morning, all night, before a healing, after a healing, before meals, before doing a miracle, on the Mount of Transfiguration, before raising Lazarus from the dead at the Last Supper. He prayed for Peter's faith. He prayed for himself, his disciples, and all believers. He prayed in Gethsemane. He even prayed while dying on the cross. Why did Jesus pray so much? He's divine, right? In and of himself. 
He is in and of himself perfect and holy and pure and true and good. So why did Jesus pray so much? At least two reasons. One theological. He was fully God. But yet, he was also fully man. And in his humanity, he relied upon, he depended upon the Holy Spirit in his life for many things. One practical reason. God was his father. He's talking to his father. This is the most intimate relationship, an eternal, intimate relationship. It was the most natural and normal thing for him to do, to talk to his father. Now, perhaps you see that these two reasons are some of the same reasons why you and me need to pray a lot. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And we need him to lead us and strengthen us, to give us wisdom, to to control We need to rely upon him. We need to develop a regular and vibrant prayer life. It's the Holy Spirit who can help us do that and then further help us to rely upon him. Unless we forget when we are praying, we are talking to our father. There's a real and intimate relationship. It can and should be for us the most natural and normal thing to do. To talk to our Father. There's no certain prayer language. There's no certain prayer posture. There are no specific words. You don't have to speak Elizabethan English. You don't have to do the sign of the cross. You don't have to pontificate on your mass knowledge of theology. Prayer is simply communicating. Communicating with God. Talking to your Father. Prayer is couched in love and acceptance. We'll get to the teaching on the model prayer next week, but but note how it starts. Our Father. Yes, there's respect and there's reverence in the teaching too, for sure we'll get to that. But it starts off with relationship. It starts off with family. It starts off with love and acceptance. It was so natural for Jesus to pray because he was talking to his Father. I think we can learn something very significant about our prayer life from Jesus' example. Today, as followers of Christ, as adopted sons and daughters, as children of God, your whole prayer life might be revived and let loose to flourish with the simple truth that prayer is communicating with your Father. When you pray, you're praying to our Father. Jesus is the example of of prayer and his teaching is our direction in prayer. So let's look at what Jesus taught there in verse 5 about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in their misuse of the purpose of prayer. The verse says, and when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward Jesus again calls these Pharisees hypocrites. Remember the word hypocrite is the Greek word for acting. They're playing a role. They're pretending to be something they weren't. For them, it's theater. They were focused on the people watching them. They were focused on appearing to the crowd to be a very religious person. And nothing gave them a better opportunity to show off 
to pretend for the crowd than prayer. They loved to pray in public because they loved to be seen by others as a religious person. The purpose of their prayer was to manipulate the crowd that was watching them to think good thoughts about them. The purpose of their prayer was to receive accommodation of men. The purpose of their prayer was focused on them rather than God. The purpose of their prayer was about their ego, their wants, their pride. Many good Jews prayed three times a day, usually at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. You'd stop whatever you were doing at that time and pray. Often it might be just a simple prayer, a, a memorized verse in the Bible. It was an opportunity to kind of retune your heart, to, to rethink your life, to refocus your thoughts on God and his will. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, in chapter 6, verse 10, it describes Daniel as praying three times a day. And it was this constant habit of praying that his enemies used to get him thrown into the lion's den. It's important to say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with playing three times a day at certain times of the day. Daniel, and I'm sure many other devout Jews, prayed this way from a heart of devotion and love to God. It was a good thing. The issue isn't the time, the amount, or even praying in public. The issue is the heart, always the heart, always the motivation, always the purpose behind the praying. Another thing that sometimes gets misunderstood in verse 5 is where it says that they were standing to pray. Prayer posture of standing while praying was the most common prayer posture in the New Testament times. It's not their prayer posture that indicates their desire to be seen. It was in their hearts where they desired to be seen. Standing was a normal position for prayer, as was kneeling or lying prostrate. Again, the issue isn't about standing or sitting. It isn't about arms open or arms folded. It isn't with your eyes open or your eyes shut. It isn't with your head bowed or your head looking up. Jesus is not talking about the posture of one's body while praying, but the posture of one's heart while praying. You can be on your knees looking all so devout all the while your heart is standing up in rebellion to God. Or you can be standing up in prayer all the while your heart is kneeling in submission to God. The focus is not on the outward, but the inward, the heart. Jesus didn't call the the Pharisees hypocrites for praying, but, but they were called hypocrites for the purpose of their prayers. They were making it all about them. Jesus in Mark 12, 40 also calls out the religious leaders saying, That for a pretense, they make long prayers. For a charade, for appearance sake, they make long prayers. So you can just picture it. As I'm sure the crowd listening to Jesus could picture it. The Pharisees walking down the street all decked out in their religious cloak. And as the hour of prayer arrives, they exaggeratingly lift up their hands in prayer. And with a loud voice, pray a long and impressive prayer. Jesus says of them, They have their reward. The purpose of their prayer was to be seen by men. Their prayer was seen by men. There's your reward. God didn't hear it. It Had no spiritual impact, none. It was just words from an actor 
putting on a show. But lest we walk away from Jesus' rebuke thinking, well, that's not us. That's not about us. Listen to this quote. This portion of Scripture, I sometimes think, is one of the most searching and humbling in the entire realm of Scripture. But we can read these verses in such a way as to really miss their entire point in teaching, and certainly without coming under condemnation. The tendency always when reading this is just to regard it as an exposure of the Pharisees, a denunciation of the obvious hypocrite. We read and we think uh, of this kind of ostentatious person who obviously is calling attention to himself, as the Pharisees did in this manner. We therefore regard it as, as just an exposure of blatant hypocrisy without any relevance to ourselves. But that's to miss the whole point of the teaching here, which is the Lord's devastating exposure of the terrible effect of sin upon the human soul, and especially sin in the form of self and pride. That is the teaching. See, these were religious people. These were religious people praying. And it had become all about them and their self and their pride. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that self-righteous religious actions that are impressive to others are also impressive to God. We must heed the challenge. We must pay attention to our hearts. Has self, has pride infiltrated our prayers so it's more about my will be done than God's will be done. It's more about performing a religious duty to kind of force God to do what we want Him to do rather than upholding an intimate relationship. Are you religious in your prayers? Or is it relationship in your prayers? You wear a false cloak of Christianity while all the time in your heart, in your private life, at work, at home, you give little attention to God. See, this challenge Jesus is giving is for all of us. Because true praying is between you and God. Verse 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. True praying is one-on-one. Now, obviously, Jesus is not forbidding public prayer. He prays publicly after he gives us teaching. There are many examples of God-blessed public prayer throughout the scriptures. It's our own heart of legalism that tries to make stricter laws out of biblical principles and thus miss the whole point of what Jesus is really trying to teach. The point isn't that praying alone in some cloistered room with no one watching, that's the answer. The answer is not the mechanics of praying. The challenge is in our heart. The point is that we are to pray only to the only one who can truly hear our prayers. You can pray alone in secret and it still be all about you. You can pray with others and have it not be about you. It's not about the location of our prayers, but the focus of our heart. The principle of praying in secret is to shut out the outside attention. To shut out the outside influences and to be singularly focused on God. 
Secret praying is praying only to God. Without regard to who's listening. Or without regard to even who is praying. Secret praying is forgetting about yourself. Forgetting about the others that are with you. And have a focus on God. The idea of praying in secret has more to do with intimacy, relationship, rather than location. God sees your secret prayers because he looks into our hearts. He sees your God-focused prayers because he's not looking at where you are praying. He's evaluating your heart. You can give to an audience of one as an act of worship by giving in a public setting. You can pray to an audience of one as an act of worship by praying in a public setting. You can pray for others and with others like Jesus did and still be focused on the audience of one. One commentator said, in a pattern of prayer Jesus taught his disciples, he begins with our Father, indicating that other believers may be present and that the prayer is corporate. But even when prayer represents the feelings and needs of others who are present, The supreme attention is to be on God. In that sense, even the most public prayer is in secret. Even if the whole world hears what we say, there is an intimacy and a focus on God in that communion that is unaffected. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't where they prayed, but why they prayed. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that there were people around them when they prayed. It was that they prayed to be heard by the people around them. The problem with the Pharisees is that the prayer was about them and for them rather than about God and for God. One said, stated in terms of essential principle, it is this. The one thing that is important when we pray anywhere is that we must realize we are approaching God. I think another application here is the priority of prayer. We must first cultivate a true God-focused prayer habit alone before we stand up to lead others in prayer. If our prayer heart is set right in our own personal prayer time, it will help us to keep our prayer heart right when we're praying around others. Jesus is an incredible example of a man who cultivated a serious, personal, private prayer habit. Mr. Abramowitz, my cross-country coach, used to often say, you're only as good as a meat as you are in practice. You're only as good as when everyone is watching you as you are when no one is watching you. That is one of the applications here. Learning to pray alone prepares one to learn to pray in public. So evaluate your praying. Is it God-focused? Do you have a vibrant, personal prayer life like our Savior Jesus did? Is it being honed and refined in those moments? Have you learned the discipline of, of the secret praying? Praying to God only when you're alone, when you're in public. The next negative example of prayer is not about the Pharisees, but it's about the Gentiles. 
Verse 7 says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Verbosity, wordiness, vain, repetitive, prayer, babbling is the misuse of the nature, manner of prayer. The error here is believing that the efficacy, the effectiveness of prayer is based on how much you pray. It's based on the specific words that you use to pray or on some particular manner of prayer. Now, prayer is not unique to Christian, you know, spiritual activity. Prayer is a part of most all false religious systems. Prayer is a common aspect in most all religious practices throughout the world, throughout time. Prayer in most false religions is focused on appeasing an angry deity or manipulating a fickle deity. If I just say the right words, the right amount of times, God will forgive me. If I just say the right words, the right amount of times, God will do what I want him to do. The focus of prayer is on the manner of prayer to mollify or to control God. The Gentiles prayed by heaping up empty phrases. Other translations say they prayed by vain or meaningless repetition or babblings. The word used here refers to idle or thoughtless chatter. It was probably onomatopoetic. That's a word that sounds like what it means, like boom or crunch. The word mimicked the sound of meaningless jabber. One commentator wrote, The first century Greeks and Romans believed in a pantheon of God, all of whom had their faults, each of whom controlled some aspect of nature. They attempted to appease as many of these gods as possible to receive their blessing and to avoid their wrath. Because their gods were so much like humans, the pagan worshippers believed that they needed to pray repetitively to get their attention. Once a worshipper got at God's attention, he continued to pray repetitively to ensure that he was heard correctly and convinced the God that his request was worth granting. Worshippers of these pagan gods also believed that the words they used carried some kind of magical power. Thus, the more often the words were used, the more powerful the magic. Jesus says of such praying, nonsense. It's just meaningless chatter. Again, it's important to point out that Jesus is not saying you can't repeat a prayer. Jesus repeats similar prayers at the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul repeats similar prayers and as he's praying about the thorn in the flesh. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about teaching the importance of persistent and enduring prayer. The point isn't the repetition. It's the vain, meaningless, thoughtless repetition. It's repeating prayers for repetition's sake. It's thinking that somehow the words or the amount of the words is going to make the prayer more effective. It's prayer focused on manipulating God. Jesus is condemning prayers that are all words and no meaning. All lips, but no mind or heart. True praying must engage our minds, our thoughts, our hearts. True praying is communication, not mindlessly repeating of the same phrase. Imagine talking to someone. And all you do is repeat over and over and over again the very same sentence or phrase. 
Imagine today at lunch, you're at dinner. Right? You're sitting across from a loved one. And all they do, the whole time you're together, is repeat the exact same sentence over and over and over and over again. No one talks to another person that way. That's not communicating. That's not a relationship. That's perfunctory manipulation. One wrote, what sort of God is this who is chiefly impressed by the mechanics and the statistics of prayer and whose response is determined by the volume of words we use, number of hours we spend in prayer, not the God of the Bible. God does not respond like some bellhop to the whims and schemes of our prayers. Now we must admit that we can sometimes become overly repetitious in our prayers. Here's a quick, easy example for us. How many of us say a very similar prayer on a regular basis as we pray for a meal? Probably most all of us do. I pray several certain things almost every day in my life. There's nothing wrong with saying similar prayers over again. The problem comes when they're just words and not thoughts. When they just become memorized sentences rather than from our hearts. When they just become meaningless repetition rather than a meaningful restatement of your heart and your mind, of your passion. Jesus wants our prayer engaging our thoughts. He wants our prayers engaging our attitudes, our emotions, our heart. Not certain words, not repetitive nonsense. Authentic communication from our heart to his heart. Why is vain, empty, repetitious Meaningless prayers? Why is it bad? Because of the character of God. That's what verse 8 says. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows. When we pray, we're never informing God of something He doesn't already know. True prayer is based on the character of God. Our all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful, total holiness, all-loving, complete sovereignty, all-seeing God. What does he want? Simple, honest communication. The Psalms are full of prayers of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and praise and supplication. The Psalms are full of prayers of fear, of questions, of need of discouragement, of loss, of despair, of disappointment. Why? Because David knew his God. David was honest with God. Because, folks, there is no other option. Because God knows. If we truly believe that the character of our God is all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful, total holiness, all-loving, complete sovereignty, and all-seeing, then there is no way that he's going to be fooled by any fake religious praying. God knows. And because he already knows, he wants us to be honest. And because he already knows, it frees us up to be honest. To communicate our heart to our God. 
Integrity and honesty, being real with God, genuine heart-to-heart communication are the type of prayers that God wants. One wrote that God is neither ignorant, so that we need to instruct Him, nor hesitant, so that we need to persuade Him. He is our Father, a Father who loves His children and knows all about their needs. He's our Father. He loves us and knows about our needs. Another wrote, Prayer is sharing the needs, the burdens, and hunger of our hearts before our Heavenly Father, who already knows what we need, but He wants us to ask Him. He wants to hear us. He wants to commune with us. More than we could ever want to commune with Him. His, he loves us. And His love for us is so much greater than our love for Him. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Prayer is in trust, pouring out our hearts before God. Psalm 27, 8 says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Beautiful. Think about this now. God is saying to you, to each one of us today, seek my face. Seek me. Come to me. Pursue me. How does your heart respond to God's invitation? Is it like David's? Is your heart responding back? Your face, oh Lord, do I seek? That's prayer. May it be so. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you now in the honesty of these moments and the challenge of Jesus Christ. What an amazing preacher. Under his preaching, under his word, right now, we come to you now to be honest. To share with you that prayer is a struggle. Help us. Teach us to pray. Challenge us to to conform not just the the actions of prayer, but the heart of prayer in our everyday life. To just share with you as a son, as a daughter, to the father and honest communication. We thank you for that. How awesome are you? Lord, you have challenged us to seek your face. And I pray for each of us. That it would be a passion, a pursuit of our lives. Lord, to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.